How big is your God? How big is your view of God? What are his attributes? What does he look like? How does he act? And and what are his abilities? Who is this God? And and how big is he? And maybe even tied up in that is what are God's limitations in your own mind? And even though we know that that God is all-powerful and he can do anything and he does everything we still, because of our sin, we still put limitations of God in our own mind. And we allow ourselves to believe things that are wrong. And we allow ourselves to fall into dangerous patterns of thinking uh, that there are things that God cannot do. Oh, God couldn't possibly let that happen. Or this thing is, is just too far. There's no way that that could possibly be real or, or, or happen. And one of the great things that the two songs pulled out was this idea of promises. And particularly with regards to God's promises, our view of who he is is really important. Our view of who God is will directly affect our belief and our interaction with his promises. Can we trust the promises that the Bible makes? Is the God of the Bible able to keep the promises that he makes when he says them? And if our conclusion is that God is not big enough to fulfill his promises, if God is not big enough to be in control, then we should discount the promises that the Bible makes. But if we, if God is indeed sovereign, if God is indeed who he says he is, then his promises are something that we must trust and we must believe. And what we're going to see tonight is that God is sovereign. God is Sovereign, and he's sovereign over all, over all things. And we're going to be in Genesis 12 today, uh, this evening. And we're going to be in Genesis 12 the next couple of times I'm with you guys. And we're going to look at the first three verses, but while you're turning to Genesis 12, let's remind ourselves what's happened in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We have seen this sovereign creator God speak and, and create everything. He has flung galaxies into space. He has set stars in the heaven. He has created matter and and animals and and all things. He's created gravity and air and, and he has shown his sovereignty in creation. And all things begin and end with God. There is nothing before him and there will be nothing after him because he is eternal. And we saw in just in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of Genesis. And we saw then the creation of man and woman, the pinnacle of his creation. But then immediately in, in chapter 3, we saw, we saw the crisis, we saw the fall, and we saw sin come into the world. And in Genesis 3.15, we see the curse. Uh, well, in Genesis 3, we see the curse coming, the curse of sin. And then in Genesis 3.15, we see a glimmer of hope. We see the promise of this seed who will come. And really, now the rest of Genesis and the rest really of the Old Testament is looking for this seed. Is looking for who will be the one who will come to, 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 to deal with the curse. And 
alongside this searching for the seed, the rest of Genesis from chapter 11, uh, 3 to 11, we see sin's proliferation. Sin grows and it, and it, and it, in, it intensifies as it goes on. And we get to the point of the flood, don't we, in 7 and 8. And we see God judge the world and say enough. And we start to worry because we think, well, hang on, if you destroy everyone, then how's this seed going to continue? And yet God preserves Noah and his family, these eight people, through which this seed, the, the promise of the seed will continue. And then we get out of the flood and the same thing happens. Sin ramps up again and it continues on. And we get to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel. And we see another of God's judgments on people, don't we? We see God dealing with them in this. And in all of that, when we get, everything's moved really quickly, hasn't it? Think about the passage of time from chapter 1 to chapter 11. That's something like 2,000 years in 11 chapters. That's fast. And we get to chapter 11, and all of a sudden, no, uh, Moses, who's narrating, who's writing this story, he slows right down. And the thing that slows him down is Abraham. So chapter 11, verse 27, we get to this point, we meet this man, Abraham. And all of a sudden, the story goes from way out here to way down here, looking in at Abraham. And it's important, we see straight away that we can trace Abraham back to Noah, to the line of the seed. And the thing about that's cool about Genesis and, and really the, the, the whole of, of this story is every time a new character comes in, we're supposed to ask that question, is this the one? Is this the one? I'm sure Eve was asking that question when Seth came along. Is this the one? Is this the seed? Is this the one that God has promised who will undo the curse of sin? Who will undo the curse of death? And we get to Abraham and we ask this question, is he the one? Is this the one who we've been waiting for. And the story focuses on Abraham. But we have a bit of a crisis with Abraham in this idea of the line of the seed. Look, in, if you can flip back to chapter 11, verse 30, what do we see? Sarah was barren. She had no child. So immediately we think, ah, oh, maybe he's not the one. What, what's going to happen? How are we going to, how are we going to see this this seed focus on. Now, although Moses has narrowed in on Abraham, Abraham's kind of the focus, but we, we must not forget that God is the hero. God is the one who is working, and we'll see that particularly today in verses 1 to 3. Abraham might be the focus, but God is the hero. And what I want to do, thinking about this idea of sovereignty, is that in these verses, just verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12, is that we will see that God is sovereign in his promises, which should convince us that obedience and following him is best. So Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, you will see that God is sovereign in his promises and that this should convince us that obedience to him is best. And we'll see this in two ways. Because uh, this is split up really nicely, these verses, into two sections. We'll see two commands and six promises. And basically, the way it's laid out is we get the command, and then we get three promises, and then we get another command, and we get three promises. And so we're going to jump straight in with our first command. And if you look in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, you'll see it there. The command is go. Go. So we come to Abraham, 
And the, and the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. He's given a command to go. And the reality of this initial command is really quite amazing. Because we've got to ask the question, what's actually happening here? Abraham, so we're told that he's from Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, and I don't know if we have the map. No, that's fine. So if we imagine, um, we're going to go this way. <laughs> if we imagine right over this side, we have Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, and then basically what uh, Abraham does, he travels from Ur over on the far east up to kind of more of the northern side to Haran. And he travels all the way eventually down to Canaan on this other side. Okay. And we see that that's where he's from. And Ur is this pagan city. It's a city of political power and commerce and trade. But it's also a city that worships the moon god, who is called Sin, which is interesting enough. And it's where Ur gets its name. The name means light or, or moon city. And Ur and Haran, these two places, were closely affiliated in their paganism. And basically, we see in verse 1, Ur, this, this actually takes place before Abraham's move to Haran. Now, in chapter, at the end of chapter 11, we're given kind of a precy of what happens. At the end of chapter 11, we're told that Abraham and his family, they go to Haran. And then chapter 1, this is, this is, uh, sorry, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, where, where it's then explaining why they went. So it's kind of like a, uh, uh, what's it called? When you look back, uh, a snapshot looking back as to why this happened. But Acts 7, verses 2 to 4, give us a little bit more detail on that. Uh, in Acts 7, we see Stephen, and he's about to be stoned. But before that, he, he gets in this defense, and he, and he speaks about Abraham, and he gives us some information about Abraham and how he came to be where he was. And and in Acts 7, verse 2, Stephen says this, and he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. So Stephen helps us see uh, the timeline for this. God appears to Abraham and tells him to go. And then Abraham goes and he gets to Haran and he pauses in Haran for a time until his father dies. And then he continues on his journey towards Canaan. And he said, and God says to Abraham, and first of all, the fact that God is even speaking to this pagan man in this pagan place is incredible. And then God actually gives him a command. So not only is the eternal God spoken to a pagan man from a pagan family in a moon-worshipping city, not only does he speak to him, but he commands him. And not only does he command him, but he doesn't tell him the details of the command. He says, go, and, and I'll tell you where you need to go. It's an, it's an incredible thought, really, because when we look at verse 4, we see Abraham's response. Look at verse 4. So Abraham went forth. He obeyed. He followed what God had said to him. Now, at this point, we don't know Abraham's salvation status. It's, and, and I would 
think that he's not a, a believer as we would call it right now. Because it's not until chapter 13 verse 18 that we see Abraham build an altar to the Lord. And it isn't until 24 years later when he's 99 that God renames him Abraham. And then in chapter 15 verse 6, I think that is the moment that records uh, that Abraham becomes a believer. Because we're told that it was then in, in verse 6 after the covenant in verses 1 to 5. That Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted or reckoned or credited it to him as righteousness. So with all this in mind, what we're seeing is God commanding an unbelieving man to leave all he has and set out on a very specific journey. And he does it. God is truly sovereign. Sovereign in the commands he gives and in who he speaks to and in, in all that he does. Now, the thing that Abraham doesn't know is that he is going to get back the things he sacrificed in in much greater measure. Abraham will give up his country and yet God will provide him with a new one. And not only will he live there, but ultimately it will be an inheritance for his people forever. Abraham gives up his family and his father's house. And yet the Lord provides his barren wife with a child and he literally becomes the father of an entire nation. Clearly, obedience to this sovereign God is a good thing. But there's another aspect to this command before we start looking at the promises that come with it. Alongside God's sovereignty, we also see his incredible grace at work here, don't we? I've already commented about the fact that Abraham was a pagan and he was brought up that way. He grew up in a place where they worshipped the creation instead of the creator. They worshipped the moon instead of the one who created the moon. And that's exactly like our day today, isn't it? Where we worship the thing that's made rather than the one who made it. And God didn't just appear to Abraham and say, right, now I've appeared to you, you've got to live a different way. You've got to buck up your ideas and you've got to follow this and you've got to, you've got to live, stay where you are, but you've got to live this way. Instead, he drew him away to a location where he could be prepared and be made into the man that God wanted him to be. To prepare the way for those who would come after, who would also be called out ones who would be set apart by God from the other nations as a possession for himself. And into the New Testament, where the principle of being set apart is continued, right? This time, not by physical separation from other nations, but where Christians are called to remain amongst the nations, but to be separate from them. How? In how they live, in how they act, in what they believe, in in who they are. And so the pattern would continue. Throughout history, the Lord would call his people to a level of separation, to a level of set-apartness, a level of holiness, which defines them as the people of God. Now, some have made the comparison of Abraham's departure from Ur to Canaan as a parallel to the idea of moving from darkness to light, from sin to salvation, from death to life. And absolutely, God saved Abraham out of paganism, uh, and darkness, and we can't help but look at this story and even these first few verses and marvel at God's grace and His sovereignty uh, at how He did this. But I don't believe we are supposed to just insert ourselves into this story. We're not supposed to say, "Oh yes, I'm Abraham, and that's just like my salvation story." That's not the point. But what we must recognize and praise the Lord for are His wonderful plans. 
And how, like his setting apart of Abraham for himself, he has done the same with us if we're a believer. Through the work of Christ. He has indeed called us out of darkness into light to live as set apart ones for his plan and for his glory. So although we're not Abraham, <laughs> it's an, it is something that we can take a lesson from and we can see how sovereignly God works in his plan of salvation. Jonathan Edwards sums this up helpfully. He says this, and for a while Edwards talks about uh, the reality that um, that, uh, of God calling Abraham out of this idolatrous country and, and taking him to a place where he had to, to stay. And, and, and then he says this, but now God took another method. He did not destroy the wicked world and save Abraham and his wife and Lot, but calls these persons to go and live separate from the rest of the world. So he's talking about this calling out-ness. And this is God's first command, to go, to leave and be set apart. But as we see in the verse, there's incentive to do this. And now we get to the three promises that come with this first command. So look there in chapter 12 and verse 2. So we get the command in verse 1, and then in verse 2 we get three promises. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. These three promises which follow the command. And let's look at the first one. I will make you a great nation. And I think it's very easy for us to miss the importance of this statement. God has said that Abraham needs to go and leave Haran to a place that he will show him. And when God does this, God will make him into a great nation. And what does that mean? And, and how is it possible? Well, for a great nation to be formed, it needs people. More people than just a husband, a wife, a nephew, and some slaves. Essentially, it means progeny, and it means children. They need children. No one can be made into a nation without children. And we remember the crisis back in chapter 11, verse 30. His wife was barren. She couldn't have children. And this is a major issue, a major crisis in the story, isn't it? This is the line that the seed has to pass through. And remember, this is why we're given these genealogies in the Old Testament particularly, to see how the line of the seed would be traced, to see how God's redemptive plan would be achieved. Now, we might think, okay, it's all right, we've got Lot. Maybe Lot could be the one that the seed would pass through. However, we see in the following chapters that Lot is the one who's going to deviate from the plan. God calls Abraham out of Ur, out of paganism, and Lot goes back into it. He goes, he goes into Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't he? He walks away from the promised land, the direction where they're supposed to go, and he goes back into the pagan territories. And then later on, we find out that Lot then has children by his own daughters, and those children then become heads of nations who end up being the enemies of Israel. Lot isn't an option. So what's God saying here? I think this is a precursor to the clarification that we'll see later on in chapter 15, where the, the Abrahamic covenant is really laid out and cut. But here Abraham himself recognizes the issue. Even though he was the one given the promise, he still doesn't understand how this will work out. He realizes that without children, this promise can't be fulfilled. So in verse 4 of chapter 15, God clarifies for Abraham and he makes it crystal clear to him. He says this, one who will come forth from your own body, 
He shall be your heir. Doesn't get any clearer than that. God is telling him, you will have children and you will be able to become a nation through that process. Abraham realizes this will all be made possible because God will give him a seed. So God promises that he will be made into a great nation. But the second promise that he's given is that God will bless him. Look there in the second line of of verse 2. And I will bless you. So with the addition with this idea of blessing, we now have in the last three lines the core components of the Abrahamic covenant. At the end of verse 1, we see land. At the beginning of verse 2, the first line, we see seed. And then uh, in the second line of verse 2, we see blessing. And these are the three things that essentially will make up the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a simple way to remember the key element of these promises. Land, seed, blessing. That's the simple way to remember it. God promises that Abraham will have a land. And we'll find out later that this land will be promised to him forever. And will be a key element in the millennial kingdom. God also promises seed that Abraham will have offspring. And he promises blessing. That there will, in some way, be a blessing associated with these promises. For this verse now, though, what does blessing mean? What does blessing mean? Well, the word for blessing is key. And it's an important word. It's the Hebrew word barach. And it's one that appears 415 times in the Old Testament, which tells us that it's an important word. And we'll take just a few moments to come to some kind of understanding of it. Well, firstly, that word barach means to bless. And certainly in the context that we're seeing it used here, when the word is used in the context of blessing and cursing, it has the idea of being esteemed or prospered, which is in contrast to the idea of being cursed, which we'll see a little bit later on in verse 3. So the idea of being prospered or blessed in the Old Testament is really important. The idea of being blessed by God was actually one of the most crucial things for someone to be assured of. But it wasn't just limited to the sphere of those who interacted with Yahweh. Um, it, it was in, in, in general society too. So one commentator says this. All religious or superstitious people, in other words, virtually the entire world, along with most of the world to this day, have actively sought the blessing of a specific deity or spirit, believing that this blessing will make them fertile or prosper them or protect them, deliver them, heal them, preserve them, empower them, exalt them, favor them, or possibly bring about all of the above. The blessing is thought of as tangible, its effects perceivable, and at times measurable. The more powerful the deity, the more important the blessing. So you can see how that's true in in the sphere of the people who are following Yahweh, but also in in the, the society in general. And a different commentator summarized this all really helpfully, and he said, where modern man talks of success, the Old Testament talks of blessing. So we could possibly use the word success there. Abraham himself demonstrates this later as he prays for Ishmael and his desire that God bless him. Or even when we think about Jacob and Esau, remember their fight, their desperation to get the blessing of of their father? Uh, And then even thinking about Jacob when he wrestled with God that night and he refuses to let go in chapter 32 until he is blessed. There is a general sense in the society that blessing is important. If you quickly turn, I'm going to have you turn to a couple of passages just really quickly. Chapter Genesis 1 verse 22. And there are a couple in succession which 
I think help give us a little bit more context of, of this idea of blessing. It's the fifth day and God has just created the animals living in the sea and the air. And we're told God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now, go forward a couple of pages to, to chapter 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And chapter 9, verse 1, gives us a similar picture. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we've seen this connection, this multiplication. And then if you jump right forward to Genesis 22 and verse 17... This continues the theme in a closer context to Abraham. Right after God has spared the life of Isaac and God himself clarifies the nature of blessing related to Abraham. Remember, God tells Abraham, take Isaac up onto the mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham goes to do that. God stops him. And then God says this. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. Bless. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So clearly, in these verses as a sample, the idea of blessing is linked with multiplication of offspring, of growth, of prosperity, of expansion. There's a sense of God's hand of approval over those who are blessed. And we talked about that when we looked at Psalm 119, what seems like 10 years ago. And we looked at the other word for blessed, which is ashray. And we we use this as well, this idea of God's hand of approval, God's sense of blessing on people. We can sometimes, though, become fixed on the material side of blessing, can't we? And Abraham, as we'll see next time, becomes very wealthy. Think of Job. Job loses all he has. But then when God restores him, God gives him more than he had in the first place. But I think it's dangerous to draw too much of a correlation between physical material things and God's approval and God's blessing. Think of, well, actually what we're going to see next time I'm with you is we're going to see the rest of chapter 12. And we'll see an instance where Abraham becomes very wealthy and yet he's not in the blessing of God. God is not happy with how he's behaving. And when we think of men like Solomon, or even, again in chapter 12, Pharaoh, these wealthy, materially wealthy, powerful rulers who are not under God's divine approval. So I think we have to be careful in drawing too much of a correlation between physical things and God's blessing. Now there's another aspect to this blessing uh, that we'll see here. And we see lastly this last promise. He says... And, and make your name great. So I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. Last phrase of verse 2. And make your name great. So as we look at this, this part of the promise. There are two key aspects here I'd like us to focus on. Very simply. The namer and the namee. The namer and the namee. Uh, so you see it there. And I will make your name Great. So we have the I and the your. The, the I is the namer, the namee is the your. Um, and here is with the guidance to the land, the making of the nation and the blessing, the active force behind everything is God, not Abraham. And here it is God saying that he will make the name of Abraham great. Now the idea of naming in the ancient Near East was important 
And it carried much more significance than we would consider today. I'm called Ben. And that's really a designator, isn't it? It's a, it's a call sign. It's an identifier so that you know I'm Ben and not Anthony. It's, it's a, it's, that's how we use it. But one commentator said this about the perspective of names in the ancient Near East. He said this. In the ancient Semitic world, a person's name often carried more significance than an identification mark. It was considered to be a description of character or conditions. Having or giving a name was related to, if not a determinative of, one's existence. And then with regard to the idea of giving a name, another commentator explains this and he says, quote, naming was also an act of dominion, especially if the name giver and the name were powerful enough to shape destiny. So a name carried more significance than just identifying someone. And if you were powerful enough to be one who could give a name to someone, that meant you were very important. Now, with this in mind, you might be thinking, well, God isn't naming Abraham here. Well, you're right. Abraham is already called Abraham. But later on, God will what? Rename him. Because at the moment, he's Abraham and God will rename him Abraham. Now the word, the name Abraham is only used 61 times between Genesis 11 and 17. But when God renames him, and he's renamed Abraham, his name is used 129 times in the rest of Genesis, and then in the rest of the Old Testament, 42 times, and then 83 times in the New Testament. So it's interesting that the name that God renames him is the one that is remembered. That is the name that is made great. Not Abraham, Abraham, the name that God has given him. And it just shows again God's sovereignty that God is in control of everything that's going on here. God is the active force. God is the one doing it. And it's interesting, Abraham means exalted father or something like that. But he isn't, is he? Because he's not even a father. He doesn't have children. And yet, when God takes over control and renames him, he gives him a child and he makes him into that exalted father. He gives him the, the reality of his name. But that only comes through God's sovereign will. And we come face to face with the might and the love of our God. Consider... Isaiah 43, and you can turn there if you'd like, because I think this is, this is a wonderful section. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. And it's an incredible word from God to his people. And it's a reminder, not just of God's authority over, over them, and, and his creation of that nation, but it's a reminder of the force that his name carries, that they are his children, because they bear his name. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. 
I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And although these promises, I mean, this is incredible stuff, showing God's sovereign hand over Israel and what he will do for them because they follow after his name. Although these promises aren't applied to us. Because we remember there's no promise made to us that our name will be made great. We don't just adopt the promises that were made to Abraham and say, oh, yep, that's for us, too. That, there's nothing in here that says Ben Bradford's name will be made great. But what does the New Testament tell us about our relationship to his name? What does Peter say in Acts 4 as he preaches Christ after healing of the lame man to the same court who crucified Jesus? This is what he says, Acts 4.10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And then he nails it home and he says... And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Yes, God is the God of Israel. And they followed him and he created them as a nation. And he has a plan for them. And he will bring that to fulfillment at later times. But he also has a plan for salvation for for Gentiles too. And we'll see that, a part of that later. And the reality is, as Christians today, we can have confidence in this same reality that we are saved in the name of Jesus. And when we are in that name, then we are his child. We are in his family. He is for us. John 1, 12 to 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but God. And Romans 8, 14, 17, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is an incredible truth, church, that if you are a believer today, that God eternal has not only set you apart from darkness and brought you into the light, not only has he made peace with you where you were once his enemy, but he has bought and paid for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And through declaring belief in his name and submitting your life to him, you have become his child. You're adopted into the family of God, the one whose name will one day cause every knee to bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That is the power of our sovereign God. And it's because of his sovereignty, because of his name, that he is in a position to bestow this blessing on Abraham. Because the reality is that no human authority can make itself great. It's only through the divine allowance or approval of God that anyone rises To greatness. And so this is the challenge today. That if you are not a child of God. That if you are not a believer. If you have not submitted to the name of Christ. Then you need to repent. If you are still trying to make yourself great. 
through your works or through how you live your life or through attending church on a Sunday night, you will fail. Because it is only God through his sovereign purposes that can, that can change anything about you, that can change your heart, that can make you great in this respect. So that's the reality of the namer. That's who is doing this. Let's look at the namee. We've already mentioned the fact that Abraham is passive in this process. It is God who will do the making great. Abraham hasn't asked for this or, to our knowledge, sought after this. Yet God is going to do this for him through his sovereign might. And at this point, we might pause and think, who else has recently, in Genesis, been trying to make their name great? And we remember Babel. Not a chapter ago, back in the beginning of of chapter 11, we remember that they sought their own name's greatness. They strove to be renowned and to spread their fame far and wide. And look at 11.4, chapter 11, verse 4, look at what they say. They say, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, God had told them to spread out into the whole world. And what did they do? They found a plane in China and they settled down and they bunkered in and they said, let's make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Their desire for their own name was their undoing. And God came down and destroyed all their plans and scattered them over the face of the earth. So it's an amazing thing that one chapter later, God is saying that he will make the name of a man... A pagan man from a pagan city in a pagan country. He will make his name great. God is promising that he will exalt the name of this man and he will bless him. It's it's just such an amazing contrast here. Because God is the prime mover. Now as we've already said that the idea of name is important. And it was often tied to the idea of reputation in the ancient Near East. So God is saying that he will make Abraham's reputation grow, his influence, his esteem to increase. And in fact, the next verse says that anyone who takes his esteem away from Abraham will be cursed. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But the last thing to note here is why has God promised to give Abraham a great name? Why has he done that? Now, he's not going to allow Abraham's name to prosper because of the same reason of the builders of Babel. He's not approving Abraham to go and build an empire for himself. We must remember that God's ultimate purpose and his goal is for him to receive the glory and honor that is due his name. It is he that must receive the ultimate glory. Let me just read Isaiah 48 to you. Isaiah 48 verses 9 to 11. And this shows us... The value that God places on his own name. And the context is Israel's obstinacy. This is, this is God speaking to Israel in their, once again, their lack of obedience. And God says, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake. For my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God's concern is for his own name and for his own glory. And that's not egotistical. That's not improper or sinful. That's the right way. 
That's absolutely right. For a perfect and holy God, he should have all the glory. And he should have all the power. And he should have all the fame. So God will make Abraham's name great. But that's so that all will know who it is that did it. All will know that Yahweh is the source of Abraham's greatness. Not Abraham himself. When Abraham is obedient and honours God, then it is God's name that is magnified, not Abraham's. Which is how it should be. So God is truly sovereign. And when he seeks to bless, he will bless indeed. And Abraham looked and he saw God's sovereign hand. And he realised it was far better to be in the will of God. To be obedient to this sovereign God than to stay in the world and to stay in his upbringing. And it's interesting that sometimes even as believers we can be pulled into forgetting that God's way is better. We can be pulled into thinking maybe I know better than God. Maybe I just need to follow my heart in this situation rather than God's word. But Abraham, even as a pagan, was able to see the truth of God's promises and his sovereignty. So this leads us to our second and final section, which begins with a second imperative, a second command. So far we've seen God's sovereignty and his command to go and the following promises. Next we see God's command to be, to be. Look there. uh, In verse at the last line of verse two. Now, you might have, and so you shall be a blessing. The ESV and the NASB say that. The KJV says, and thou shall be a blessing, which we could have predicted. And the NIV says, you will be a blessing. And the imperative is somewhat hidden here. But it's there in the Hebrew. It's This is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This is, well, you know, go about your business and you be a blessing. This is, you will be a blessing. You go and you be a blessing. This is God saying, go. And this is God saying, be. Be a blessing. This is a command. So now, following God's promise to Abraham that he will be blessed, he is told that he must bless others. And we've already linked this idea of blessing with Abraham's offspring and multiplication and also with the expansion of his name and reputation. But those things don't seem to fit here, do they? Because it can't be, it doesn't seem right that God is saying that other nations should expand and be blessed. Particularly as none of them are following Yahweh. Nor does it make sense that God would be wanting other nations' names to be made great. Because this would diminish the glory that God would get from blessing the shepherd from earth. So how is Abraham to be a blessing to those around him? Now next time we meet, we're going to see an instance When Abraham is not a blessing. And that's going to be more instructive for us. So we'll talk a little bit more about this idea when we get there. But if you skip on to chapters 13 and 14. We see a couple of instances when Abraham does bless people around him. In chapter 13. that He blesses Lot. By dealing with this issue with the quarrel of the herdsmen. He he doesn't make it a big issue. He says you go that way. I'll go this way. And the conflict is dealt with. He, He blesses Lot in that way. He doesn't make Lot be subservient to him. He's he's kind in this. Now Lot goes and makes a poor choice. But Abraham doesn't seek dominance over him. In chapter 14. He blesses the king of Sodom. By not keeping any of the goods taken in battle. When he defeated Geodolema. So. 
We see some of these small instances, but I still believe there's more to Abraham's mandate to bless than just military or political peace with those around him. And I think we see the answer played out in the next three promises. So we have this next command, be a blessing. And then we have the next three promises. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. What I'm going to do is group those first two together. And I'm going to call them blessing versus cursing. And then the last one we're going to call eternal blessing. So let's deal with the first group, blessing versus cursing. And it's actually the section of the verse that mentions the cursing that gives us the context to help uh, understand this. Whenever that word, blessing, barak, is used in the context of blessing and cursing, we said before that it takes on the meaning of being esteemed in the sense of being prospered as opposed to being cursed. And being cursed has the idea of being made to suffer or want, which means to be in lack of something, to be missing something. And a helpful example, I think, is Genesis chapter 27, verse 29. You don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. Um, but it says this. So this is in the context where of, of again, um, Jacob and Esau. Uh, and Jacob has tricked Isaac into giving him the blessing. And it's the last little thing that Isaac says to him. And Isaac says, may people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. So there's this idea, this sense of paying homage, of, of treating someone the way that they should be treated. And what we'll see is that as long as Abraham is being a blessing to others and obeying the command, then whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed and whoever curses Abraham will be cursed. Now, if you look at your uh, the second part of, of check, the second line of verse three, in English translations, there's some variation. So my NASB says, the one who curses you, I will curse. The ESV says, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And another, uh, and there are a couple of other variations. And the reason for this discrepancy is that there are two Hebrew words used here, and they mean two different things. Now. They have a general sense of being cursed, which is why they can be translated as cursed. But this first word in the sentence is the word kalel, which means to declare someone contemptible or insignificant or literally lightweight. Like they're, they're just not worth anything. They're insignificant. They're lightweight. And this is the opposite of making his name great. So if you, if I say that Habib is insignificant, then I'm not blessing him, am I? I'm not showing blessing to Habib. So if someone is going to treat Abraham with disdain or call him lightweight or lack, lack esteem to him, then he's not being treated in such a way as he will prosper. And if they do that, that means they will be aor, which is the second Hebrew word, which means curse. They will be bound with a curse. They will be under the Lord's displeasure. And this word for curse, or is the same word that's used in Genesis 3.17, where God curses the ground. And it's the same word when God curses Cain after killing his brother. So clearly, we're seeing a relationship happening here. When Abraham treats others the way he should to bless them, and they respond with blessing, then they will be blessed. But if they respond with evil, then they will be under God's displeasure. Now, we're not going to spend any more time on that because we're going to deal with that a lot next time. 
So what I want to do is come to this last line of verse 3, which I think is the most wonderful. And I've entitled this eternal blessing. And it says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The final promise is the one which should cause cause us to sit up a little straighter in our chairs and our ears to prick up and for excitement to grow. What does it mean? All the families of the earth will be blessed. God has just made these promises to Abraham specifically. Promises that relate to his family and his interaction with the nations and the people around them. He has been given two mandates from God to go and to be. And the conditions of each have been laid out now. But now God's promises, God promises Abraham something outlandish. Something which seems like it must be hyperbolic. We can imagine Abraham trying to get his mind around it. What does it mean? Somehow, something coming from Abraham will be the result of all, will result in all the families of the earth receiving some kind of blessing. Now notice that God says family, not person. Not every person on the earth will be blessed. And that word that's used for family is, uh, is family or clan, but it can also be translated nations or nations of the world. All nations, all peoples, all families, tribes, tongues will be blessed. It's starting to sound familiar. Remember how we began today. We were reminded that Genesis is a book about tracing the seed. Looking for the line that promised seed would come through to destroy the curse. And Moses has slowed the narrative of Genesis down at this point, at the end of chapter 11, and focused on Abraham. And first we saw that Abraham was not a good candidate for the seed to go through his line because he had no heir. But now God has promised not just to fix that, but to multiply his descendants dramatically. And now we get to this final promise. And God is saying, I think that through him, the long-awaited seed will come. That this one, who will be a descendant of Abraham, he will bless the nations of the world. How? How could that? Who, Who is this guy? How could this be? How can he bless all the nations of the world? How can one person bless everyone? Because that one man would crush the head of the serpent. And reverse the curse of sin and death. He would conquer where Adam failed. He would be perfect where where Adam sinned. And he would triumph in the face of temptation where Adam succumbed. Now we don't know how much exactly Abraham at this point knew. But Jesus in John 8 tells us something really interesting. So just go there with me. John chapter 8. And this is the instance where... Jesus has been essentially, well, literally, accused of of doing the things he does through the power of a demon. Uh, And the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? After all he's done. And in 50, and then they start talking about, they bring Abraham up and they say, well, Abraham, are you greater than Abraham? And in 56, John 8, 56, Jesus says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus here makes it very clear who he is. And anyone who says, 
that Jesus doesn't make any claims to deity in the Gospels is absolutely wrong. The reason they picked up stones to throw at Jesus was because that was a direct claim to being God. He says, before Abraham was in existence, I was alive. Because I am the eternal Logos. And Jesus tells us here that Abraham has given an insight into the blessing that will come through Christ, the promised seed. And it will be applied to every tribe and tongue and nation. And Revelation 7-9 confirms that this is exactly true. John, after the introduction to the 144,000 in Revelation 7-9 says this. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe, every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ. This is the culmination of the promise to Abraham. This is how he will be a blessing to all nations. And yet, just as those who cursed Abraham would be cursed, that will be for the same for all who look on the sacrifice of Christ and reject it. The whole point of the seed is to come and undo the curse of sin, which has infected every man and woman and child from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. No one escapes it. Everyone has succumbed. Christ came and with the payment of his own blood was willing to die a horrific death as a substitute for those who would put their trust in him and follow him. Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection defeated sin and death once for all. And Psalm 2 says this, and it's a, a joy, a challenge and a warning. Do homage to the son. Bless the son, as some say. Kiss the son. As some translations say. That he may not become angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And just a final challenge today guys. If if you are not taking refuge in Jesus. You must. If that's not where you're at. Today, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, if you have not come to the point of recognizing that you are a sinner in need of salvation, you must take refuge in Jesus. Because the storm of the wrath of God is coming. And one day we will stand before our creator, this sovereign God, who created all things and put all things into being. And we will have to give an account for the sin that we own. And if we haven't got Christ, then we will have to bear that punishment. If we are not taking refuge in him, we will have to bear the weight of our sin ourselves instead of that wonderful work of Christ on the cross taking it for us. So here in the final line of verse 3, we with wonderful hindsight can look back and see that this is all part of God's sovereign plan. And yes, God is working to bless a man who doesn't deserve it. Some pagan guy from a pagan nation. But he's also working to use that man for the purpose of creating a lineage, of creating a nation that would ultimately result in the culmination of the plan of redemption. What a great and glorious God we have. What an incentive we have uh, to, to learn what we can from these promises. And what they tell us about God, about who he is and how he operates about what's important to him and what he demands from those he loves. 
So as we go from here into our weeks, let's not forget the importance of the reality of God's sovereignty. And to remember that obedience is best. That following his way is best. Let me close with the words from Hebrews 10 verse 23. This exhortation to us. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father God, we've been reminded of your sovereignty. That you are overall, that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, that there is nothing that escapes your notice, that there is nothing outside of your control. And when you promise something, you will do it. That there is no error within you, that there is no falsehood within you, and that you have the power to do exactly what you said you were going to do. We thank you for the life of Abraham and the way you worked through him, despite him being just like us, a fallen, sinful man who makes mistakes and gets things wrong, yet you still chose to use him. And and that through him, ultimately, we are able to receive the benefit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we go out into this week to remember your sovereignty and that it should draw us and exhort us and challenge us to obedience in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.